Hello everyone, this is The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times and The Six Nations is here. Following the Rugby World Cup last year, is this the start of another four-year cycle or is it all about the here and now? France and Ireland will be the favourites. Can Scotland genuinely compete with them? What improvements will Warren Gatland and Steve Borthwick be plotting for Wales and England? And Italy, can they avoid the wooden spoon or... Is there a bit more up for grabs for them as well? I'm Alfie Reynolds, and to help me navigate our preview of the tournament, we've assembled an esteemed panel of journalists. Will Kelleher, as always, is joining me. How are you, Will? Hello, I'm good. Six Nations Eve, so it's exciting, isn't it? When we come round, it doesn't feel like the World Cup's been long past, but we're here already. Six Nations time, All, all very exciting, isn't it? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. We'll run through every team in this preview, but also joining us, we have Elgin Alderman. Elgin, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Alfie? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Last time we spoke to Elgin on the pod was shortly after the World Cup, I think. There's been a lot happened since then, in particular in terms of the Welsh team and the Welsh game, which is Elgin's specialist subject, if you like. We've also got Mark Palmer as well. You right, Mark? I'm very well, thanks, Alfie. Good, good. And Peter O'Reilly joining us from Dublin. Peter, good to speak to you again. Good to have you back on the ruck. Thanks, Alfie. Of uh, fond memories of our last meeting in a very cramped uh, hotel room in Paris. Uh, seems like a very long time ago, but yeah, it's great to be back. So prior to getting into the full discussion, and we'll talk about France and Ireland, that absolute blockbuster of a game that is going to kick off this year's Six Nations, Scotland and England and Wales and Italy as well. I thought we'd go through each team and and just a sentence maybe to sum up where they are heading into this Six Nations. Six Nations is always brilliant. And I think on the back of a World Cup, it adds a different layer of intrigue. I don't know if anyone wanted to start us off. Elgin maybe for... For Wales, how would you, in a sentence, sum up where Wales are at the moment? Well, after the World Cup, it's a very green-looking squad, as was always expected, and a few key injuries to the likes of Jack Morgan and and Dewey Lake have have made that even more the case. And when you're looking at the fixture list, you're thinking, if they don't beat Scotland in Cardiff on the opening weekend, then it looks like they might be facing a potential wooden spoon decider against Italy on the last weekend. So a fast start, as always, will, will be key for Wales. That, that, that first game up is huge in, in Cardiff against Scotland. OK, slightly more than a sentence, but we'll let you off. It's all right. Uh, will, what I do you reckon? I stopped. That was one sentence. <laughs> no, well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. OK. In that case, we could be here a while. Uh, will, what about from a, an, an English perspective? So I am going to try and keep it to a shortish sentence. Can England build from bronze, reconnect with Twickenham to show there's life after Farrell and Laws? There you go. That's my sentence. Multiple claws, multiple claws sentence. Because <laughs> we write for the Times, right? So we can be mellifluous and we can we can have multiple clauses in our sentences. Mellifluous. Now, there's a word I didn't expect to hear on uh, the Rucks preview know, of the Six stop Nations. Showing off, though. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll be getting out my thesaurus to compete in a sec. Uh, Mark, what about from a Scottish point of view? For Scotland, we'll keep it nice and simple and go with must do better. Dot dot dot. But will they? <laughs> uh, it was an extremely extremely disappointing World Cup, despite the fact that um, they effectively get a free pass given the, the horror draw they had with Ireland and South Africa, but even so, didn't fire a meaningful shot in either of those big games, so there was a real sense of them not not really having arrived at all at that tournament, and then and then quite swiftly departing, so, sorry, somebody, somebody sticking no, I was hand. just going to say, Mark, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting all nostalgic for the World Cup with everyone mentioning the horrible draw. I thought we'd got over it. <laughs> No, no, we shall never get over it. Oh, we for the months have not changed anyone. Speaking of getting over it, Peter, from an Ireland point of view, defending Six Nations Grand Slam champions off the back of the World Cup and the obvious quarterfinal defeat again, how do you sum up where Andy Farrell's side are heading into the Six Nations? Uh, Ireland, I would say, are desperate to get back at it after an extended period of mourning and desperate to show that they can be successful Post Johnny Sexton, and you know, in the, the post Johnny Sexton era, there's a freshness everywhere, isn't there, with this Six Nations? And maybe that often happens after a World Cup. But you look across all, pretty much all the teams, and they're, they're they've lost an iconic figure, haven't they? No Antoine Dupont, no Johnny Sexton, no Courtney Laws, no Owen Farrell, no Alwyn Jones, no Justin Tipperick. Like these guys have been dominating the Six Nations for the last decade or so, and all of them are not there. So there's naturally going to be a fresh feel. And actually, that's quite exciting, isn't it? Because the usual form, maybe, of 
Ireland and France being then one and two and can anyone break that duopoly, I suppose, of the last couple of years may change because France have got a lot of injuries, they've got a lot of people out. Ireland have got a change, haven't they? They've got their issues over number 10, who's going to play there. So can one of the others put together a, a set of five that challenges them? That's going to be fascinating. And that teases up quite nicely, Will, I suppose, because there is a freshness about it. You always naturally have that post-World Cup, as you mentioned, with retirements. But I still look at that game on the opening night, Ireland against France. I mean, Peter, I don't know what the mood is in Ireland, and I'd imagine maybe they're, they're not going down this route or this sort of narrative. But do people think that will maybe not decide the championship because it can't be decided on the opening night. But is there any sense of that game is going to go a huge way? Whoever wins that game after that will be massive, massive favourites to go on and, and win the tournament. Yeah, well, I'm I'm reluctant to, to rule all the other contenders out with one, one sort of, uh, in one sentence, if you like. But the word that uh, that will use there, duopoly, you know, the the, the Ireland France duopoly of the the last couple of years, it is it is fair. I think there is a sense that that it, that's a new, um, it's a rivalry which is which is fascinating. And I know that in the French media, uh, it's been this game has been referred to as you know the final at the start of the competition. I I'm reluctant to start to start making those assumptions purely because. Really, because this Irish team, although it's only missing, going to be missing a couple of players from the team that played the quarterfinal, both of those are are pretty are hugely influential. Uh, Mac Hansen, obviously not in the same league as, as Sexton, uh, but still influential in terms of the way that Ireland play. But the whole the whole Sexton thing is um, is fascinating, and the performance of Jack Crowley, who's you know ninety nine percent you know. Uh, nailed on to start in in Marseille. Um, It's fascinating because Sexton has been so influential. Whoever takes over from him is going to have a difficult job. Jack Crowley seems like a kid who uh, has big game temperament. He showed it in the the URC final down in Cape Town last year. He he stepped up and dropped a goal at the Aviva Stadium in in the semi-final of that tournament. But he's got nine caps. Only three of those were... Were as a star, an international starter, uh, and two of those games were in World Cup warm-ups. And I know Anton Dupont's uh, influence is, has been absolutely huge, but I don't think anybody has has influenced. I don't think an individual has influenced the Six Nations to the same extent as, Sex, as Sexton in recent years. So that's why I'm, I'm reluctant to start talking about slams or championship titles because um, it's all about sort of getting through this game in France. That's uh, that's the important thing. Alfie, as someone who doesn't follow either team that closely, the thing that's fascinating is that the team that's had the other one at home has won in the last couple of years, haven't they? So France, when they it was in Paris, beat Ireland and won the Grand Slam. Ireland had them in Dublin last time, beat them, won the Grand Slam. So that's where I think the outsiders, us lot who aren't in Ireland or aren't Irish or aren't French, are looking at it and going, that looks like the final on the first night. But the the, the question is... Are they going to lose somewhere else? If France, let's say, beat Ireland on the opening day, is anyone else good enough to beat them somewhere else? And to be honest, like we'll get into us where we think everyone's going to finish. I think both teams could lose another match somewhere else because of the sort of evenness, maybe, of the quality. So that, I, I wouldn't say maybe as per the last couple of years that France Ireland's the be all and end all this year. Yeah, that's probably a better way of phrasing it. Actually, I probably didn't phrase the question particularly well. I guess that was. What I'm querying, if you talk about that duopoly, and is anyone else yet in a position where they're good enough to be able to kind of break into it? We can get onto that later in the podcast. I realised that we've done the home nations. What about Italy and France in terms of our sentences? Mark, you cover a lot of Italian rugby. You follow it quite closely. Italy are a fascinating one. How do you sum up them heading into the Six Nations off the back of what ended up, even though we didn't really expect them to get through that pool, still ended up being a really disappointing World Cup? I think their tagline would be something along the lines of go- going back to the future. They've got, they've got a new coach in Gonzalo Quezada, who's replaced Kieran Crowley after the World Cup. And speaking to him uh, at various times over the last couple of months, he is very much about uh, trying to introduce a, a dose of pragmatism and going back to some of the more conservative roots of their uh, you know, 10-man game. Under Kieran Crowley, they, they developed an, a really attractive, expansive game where they were, they were running the ball from virtually anywhere, delivered a couple of landmark results, sorry Elgin, in, in Cardiff and, and beating Australia for the first time. But 
it became utterly exaggerated by the end, where, where they were kind of it, it became predictable in its own way, and 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 ultimately saw them fall apart, as we mentioned those two uh, World Cup horror shows. So I think they're gonna they're gonna kind of maybe come, retreat in on themselves a little bit and look to play the game in, in in better areas of the field. Still, still, you know, they've got a midfield and back three who can who can still attack from anywhere, but I think they won't have quite as much license to do that. So whether that whole mix is good enough to to deliver a win, any win. I'm still not convinced, certainly looking at the fixture list, but I think we'll see a, a different looking Italy team in this championship. And Elgin, what about from a French point of view? We were all speaking about it before we started recording, wasn't it? And it, it's something to do with the absence of DuPont, but them still being an incredibly dangerous and good side. Absolutely. They're missing DuPont, who is the best player in the world and will be until he retires because he just plays at a different level to anyone else ever has really in the scrum half position. And yet his replacement, Maxime Lucu, who doesn't have the same sense of razzmatazz about him. And yet he's playing at nine for Bordeaux Bergle inside Mathieu Jalibert, who, as we saw in the game against Saracens, again, they're missing Romain Antemac, but Jalibert is arguably a more exciting fly half. And emerged initially before he had a, a bad injury on his debut, but he emerged into the France team first before Antimac. And you've got this situation now where Lucu Jalibert at 9 and 10, they've got possibly Moafana and the two wings from Bordeaux as well, Louis Bielbiere and, and Damian Peno, who is probably the best wing in the world now as well. He's I always describe him as the world's best headless chicken because even he doesn't know what he's going to do. And yet... So how, how is anybody else going to have a clue what, what Damian Peno is up to? So they've got those, they've still got those meaty forwards up front and those thrilling Bordeaux backs and Toulouse, of course, uh, Toulouse players knocking about as well, like Ramos. So they're still going to be very good, even though they are missing the world's best player. Do we have them as the favourites, do you think? I don't think you'd have them as the favourites just because I think it's obviously until we see them take on Ireland, the sense Last year, when they met in that brilliant match, you know, that everyone remembers for Ireland winning, but also that Dupont tackle on, on Mac Hansen out wide and the thrilling Peno try, but then Ireland coming back to win. You just think that even though France probably have 15 better players in, the, in a starting 15, Ireland were a better team. And I think that is probably still the case. And obviously, like we said, it's, it's that first matchup after a World Cup, new four-year cycle. So... It, you know, it, things might alter on that first night in Marseille, but equally, my, my gut says now that Ireland are probably the better team, even if France are the better 15 players. The thing that I'm so fascinated about France is that it's such a massive psychological challenge, this, I think. Because everything about their rugby over the last seven or eight years was built towards winning the World Cup last year, and they didn't do it. Um, like Everything was grooved with the club game. They sorted out so much of the stuff that was holding them back for the last decade or so. And it just didn't work. Like it didn't happen. World Cups are cruel. They lost by a point to South Africa and didn't. It, they just got knocked out, and that was it. So the hurt. How much does that drive them through? Is it a help or a hindrance? That and the coaching staff that have sort of evolved a little bit, but Sean Edwards still there, Galtier still there. Can they get a new sort of evolution or revolution out of this French team? Where do they expand the game? Is it just little tweaks or is it fundamental? It will also be interesting to see how they fare playing outside of Paris because they, they're not playing any of their matches at the Stade de France because of the Olympics. So they're taking it around Marseille, Lyon, Lille. You can't imagine another country being able to do that, but such is rugby in France that they are able to take it around the country. They've been doing it for several years, autumn internationals, taking them around. So it'll be interesting to see if that impacts them or if it perhaps you know frees them up taking it around the country in this in this country that does love rugby so much yeah i remember a few weeks ago talking to people in france to see whether there had been any <clears throat> reaction to the failure at the world cup if failure is the right word you know had the had the top 14 coaches who have given so much to the the national cause were they beginning to whinge about you know all the time all the access they'd given to the players and uh, there doesn't seem to be um any sort of fallout for for for, for Galtier, uh, and there seems to be huge rugby is is popular again, and that hasn't been affected. Uh, there was massive demand for tickets for this game, sixty seven thousand people in Marseille. Uh, I think they're very they're absolutely favourites to win the tournament, but the the slight and they're and I would say they're also favourites to win a slam. But the the only thing that makes me doubt that 
which is fascinating for round two is the fact that they're playing in Murrayfield and they seem to have a, an issue, especially with sort of lunchtime kickoffs in, in Edinburgh, um, which makes that game incredibly watchable also. So I think they have to be favourites. And because they, have, because they have England and Ireland at home, that makes them favourites to win a slam. But you can, you can, I, I agree that there's a possibility that a slam seems, or maybe the, I agree that the, the slam is uh, not is going to be hard to win this year, definitely. The other couple of things that I find fascinating about France. So, does everyone know? This is a quiz for you all. How old Gregory Aldrete is? We'll start. Go on, Mark. What do you reckon? How old's Aldrete? Twenty nine. Okay. Okay. Elgin, I think you'll probably know. Oh, well, I was going to say 26. Uh, 26? 28. It's only 26. Ridiculous. I mean, this is actually still quite a young French team. Like, you look across that Bordeaux back line as well. They're not over the hill at all. They're, they're not sort of, I don't know, maybe you would look at the some of the players in the Ireland team that went to the World Cup and say that that was their last shot. But that's not the case for all of the all of the French. So... It's whether they. It's not about four year side because you said in the intro. I would say it's about winning here and now. But there are a few guys there who've got a lot of time to give in French jerseys. And then the other thing I was just going to quickly say is this power thing that France have based their game off. So it seems like Fabien Galtier pretty much convinced Winnie Antonio to keep playing. He was probably going to retire, but was looking at his stocks of tight heads and thought, I need him again. And we've got Emmanuel Mayafu now coming in. He's He's got a little injury, so may not be there for the first few games of the Six Nations, but they replaced him with Paul Willemser, who, remember him, he's not a small bloke either. So <laughs> this power thing with the backs behind it could be potent. Final word on Ireland, Peter. It kind of seemed to me classic Andy Farrell in a way. I know tongue-in-cheek at the top I said about, is it the start of a new four-year cycle and that whole narrative, which is something that Farrell always plays down. And that's reflected, I think, as you mentioned, Peter Omani being selected as a captain. 26 of the 33 players who went to the Rugby World Cup are part of this squad. Again, it's it's evolution rather than any sort of revolution for, for Ireland. It's a continuation of what they have been doing previously rather than a, a line in the sand and starting new. Yeah, I think so. And um, especially for the, um, the first game, he'll want as many or as few moving parts, if you like. I've been looking at the possibility of uh, him going even heavier on the Leinster front for that game. Number 14, as I mentioned, is a is a jersey that has to be filled because uh, Mac Hansen is injured. You bring back Jordan Larmer, who's a little bit little bit uh, questionable under the high ball. Let's talk about Calvin Nash coming in from Munster. He's only got one cap. Or do you do you pick Gary Ringrose on the wing and bring Robbie Henshaw? And if you know, Robbie Henshaw was one of the players of the Lions tour a couple of years ago. So pick your strongest team, get your best players on the pitch with a view to winning that game, with a view to putting as much experience around your your young fly half, I suppose. Peter, can I ask you a, a short question on the new dynamic with Andy Farrell being named the Lions coach? There's no questioning his commitment to the doing the Ireland job, but does that change anything that he's doing that job next year? No, I don't think so. You know, I think the way, the way his employers look at it is that um, the next World Cup is in Australia. You know, it's a recce for him, if you like. And there is also a sense of there being a, a plan for who takes over from Farrell. You know, it'll probably come from within the current coaching team. So there's interest to know whether he might bring, say, Paul O'Connell with him, given given O'Connell's sort of Lions cred. But then that would, you know, he can leave Simon Easterby, who's been a head coach before, he can leave him in charge. So I, I, I don't think it's going to change anything. And uh, I do know he... I think he was keen to go on the last tour. Um, I don't think the RFU were. Uh, I think they convinced him that that maybe he should, you know, there was still work to be done with Ireland. But now uh, he's completely comfortable in his role. And a key reason for Ireland's success, certainly, you know, in the last couple of years has been that he has had complete faith in his his technical staff. And so he'll be happy to, and people will be happy for him to leave them in, in control while he's gone. Well, what a start to the Six Nations. France against Ireland on the Friday night. I remember the England players after the opening game of the World Cup in Marseille. And Will, you'll remember this, speaking about how it was one of the best atmospheres that they'd ever played in. And no doubt it's going to be something similar or probably better than that for that opening night. Speaking of England, we'll move on to them next, as well as the Scots, who are quite fascinating post-World Cup as well. So that's coming up next. 
Mark, coming to you first of all from a Scottish perspective, I still remember us being in some part of the Stade de France hours after it had been confirmed that Scotland weren't getting through to the knockout stage as most of us expected they wouldn't be able to. And I asked you just kind of what's the general Scottish perspective on the World Cup and it still stuck with me and you just said a bit of a non-event. That was how it felt from a Scottish perspective. You've mentioned it already, but off the back of that, coming into this Six Nations, is it finally we're back to it? It was such a disappointment that you can start to look forward again and feel a bit more positive after being in just a ridiculous pool pool draw. I think that's definitely the sense you get from speaking to, to players and coaches who were involved out there. It, it took a long time for them to digest. And, and again, probably in a slightly odd sense that it wasn't an unexpected outcome even for them, but the manner of it still kind of smarted because uh, you know they, they really didn't show anything like what we've been led to believe and what you know what the evidence suggests this team is capable of certainly in terms of the way they attacked in last year's Six Nations the way they, they played and even in the warm-up games before going to France so I think there's a sense of a kind of fresh start and and, and, and trying to put up a much better version of the side on the pitch because we do believe it's in there somewhere. And speaking of a fresh start co-captain so Jamie Ritchie no longer the captain what's been the story there I've seen that news has been met with a, a mixed reaction from what I've seen. So Rory Darge and Finn Russell as the co-captains, what was Gregor Townsend's thinking there? Is it purely form and selection based? That That's certainly the message that Gregor's been putting out this week, that he simply feels that Jamie's now no longer guaranteed to start or be, be part of his first choice starting team, given that the back row is an area of intense competition, probably the most hotly contested area of that Scotland team, as, as is often the case. But Jamie, by his own admission, probably warm-up games and World Cup wasn't at his, wasn't at his best. And there are certainly others who are, who are ahead of him on club form this year. There was maybe also a sense that he kept getting on the wrong side of referees, uh, which is obviously a key part of the modern game, that, that communication with officials was not a strong suit of his whereas certainly on the sort of limited uh, evidence we've seen of Finn Russell as, as a captain and just generally as a leader referees do seem to enjoy his style of interaction and he is going to be the designated point of contact if both him and uh, Darge are on the field at the same time which and, and Darge has been a coming force for, for a number of years. He's had some real bad luck with injury. Even at the moment, there's still doubt as to whether he's going to play in Cardiff. He got a, a knee injury in the second Edinburgh derby over, over Christmas. But, you know, again, a guy who really does lead by example, an absolute force of nature on both sides of the ball. So uh, I can I can definitely see the logic to this change. I, I think something, maybe this is unfair, Mark, but you can tell me otherwise, but something with Scotland is we know they can play. We know that Finn has a lot of fun. He's got a brilliant partnership with Tui Pilotu and Hugh Jones outside and some lightning outside backs. Duan van der Merwe beats millions of defenders. But they've got to find a savage front row, I think. like They can they can tune up Wales and they can tune up Italy and they've done well against England quite a lot of the time about around the breakdown and things like that. They make it a mess, don't they? But can they properly compete in the scrum with a France or an Ireland, because that's going to be the key, isn't it? Do you Absolutely, think? and I think that's been the issue for for years is kind of that ability to to withstand and counteract a, a team that goes you know hard physically and plays north south rugby. Um, and and the, the simple answer is they haven't been able to. You know they, they, they've beaten France when it's become fast and loose, but Ireland has been an, an impossible kind of nut to crack just because they know exactly the recipe for beating a, a Gregor Townsend Scotland team. And you know you can't you can't magic up eight massive men from nowhere, but but, you know, there are a couple of guys that have come in recently. Darge, one of them, Jack Dempsey, another, that kind of do have that real dog about them uh, in the in the back row. But as you say, sort of resources are paper thin in the front row. Uh, heaven help us if poor old uh, Xander Ferguson goes down injured at some point because uh, nearly 38-year-old uh, Willem Nell is, is the next man in the queue. And, and although has been playing superbly well for a man of his age, you know, it, it really is an indictment of how bad our kind of pathway system has been allowed to become that he's still the next cab off the rank the other thing i suppose is is just the welsh thing isn't it yes like winning in cardiff i mean mark you and i were both there in that horrendous lanethley <laughs> game in, in covid where there was no one there about eight of us in the stands and and scotland won for the first time since 2002 on welsh soil but i mean you probably can't really count that as a proper win away in wales can you on the circumstances no. so this is a scotland team that's quite good at 
at making history and breaking records, but that's the one, isn't it? Winning Cardiff. It has to be, and it's the one that kind of feels almost the most ridiculous because there shouldn't be that disparity between Scotland and Wales. You know, and historically there hasn't been. There's been periods of dominance from from both sides over the decades, but for that run to have endured now for 22 years is is borderline silly, really. And it's all manner of Welsh teams that they've managed to find a way to lose to as well, particularly two years ago when you know that, that was probably the, the worst that I can remember. Where they went there with so much confidence having won against England in their first game and then just produced a, a, a miserable performance so it's definitely a psychological hurdle as much as anything that they need to get over and you know no better time to do it than the first weekend of the Six Nations. Mark can I ask a question it's based on on results in that game I mentioned the, the fixture I mentioned earlier Scotland France I'm right in thinking that Scotland have won three of the last four of those games in, in Murrayfield explain Again, as I said, those those have become sort of fast and loose, which suits Scotland down to the ground because they want to play at pace, they want to play with width. They, when they take the structure out of the game, it suits them perfectly. So, you know, again, when it's kind of attack v attack, then, you know, Scotland will fancy their chances against anyone. But kind of on the other side of the ball, that's potentially where things have, have drifted in the last 18 months or so. As ever, though, you know, comes down to that first game, if you were to win in Cardiff, you're suddenly looking at back-to-back home games against France and England as, you know, both of them eminently winnable because, as, as we've just said, they've done that in, in, in the past four or five years. They've beaten both of them. So, whereas you lose in Cardiff and those two games look <laughs> look rather nasty before back-to-back away games to finish off. So, it, I think a lot of the tenor of, the, of Scotland's tournament will come down to that first match. Might be a bit of an unfair question, Mark, but what constitutes success for Scotland in the Six Nations? It's a very good question. It's 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 almost devilishly impossible to to quantify because they've been in that position of being competitive, of being able to compete with 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 the teams that we'd expect to be above them for the last three, four, five years under Gregor Townsend. But they've never taken that final step of genuinely competing for a title. They've never gone into the last weekend of a Six Nations thinking we're still in with a crack here, even the the penultimate weekend of a Six Nations. So I think that in itself would be a step forward if by the time we go to Dublin in uh, the middle of March that they're still in with a crack somehow of, of even finishing top two. That would constitute success. They've kind of ticked off three wins in a number of recent seasons could they get to four I think it's a huge ask but you know that 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 would be a a sort of manifest improvement yeah I would say four wins it's got to be four wins so looking back over the last few years 2019 one win fifth 2020 three wins fourth 2021 three wins fourth 2022 two wins fourth 2023 three wins third it's got to be four wins and that means Mm. beating France basically at home doesn't it it does and for all that uh, Peter's false modesty will not allow him uh, to to say so I just can't see that that Scotland uh, changing the narrative of of, of that kind of Ireland fixture on the final weekend particularly if you know Ireland are going for a slam or to to, to secure the championship so you're right I think if if it's going to be four then then France is is the one that has to be the kind of extra one if you like well Mark if people want to know more about Scotland they they can come back to the ruck in a couple of days can't they we we were in Edinburgh the other day. Yes, we had an excellent afternoon uh, speaking to numerous members of the Scotland squad um, as they prepare for this first game in Cardiff. Um, so a special bonus Scotland-themed episode of The Ruck coming up. Yeah, that episode will be out later on this week from inside the Scotland camp. Some really great chats that Mark and Will had up there. So keep your eyes peeled to your Ruck feed for that. You said somewhere there about changing the narrative, I think, Mark. And if that brings us on quite nicely to England, I think, because Will... That's absolutely the case for them, isn't it? I mean, multiple back-to-back-to-back Six Nations where they've started terribly, they haven't built momentum, they at no point have been in a position to compete for the title. And this Six Nations for Steve Borthwick is, in a sense, even though he has been in charge for a year, there was always the sense that I got and I think you got from being close to the camp and following it that it was assessing what he had last Six Nations, holding it together together, for the World Cup, does this now almost, in a weird way, feel like the start of the Steve Borthwick reign? Yeah, in some ways, I suppose. And he he gained some credit by getting to that bronze by hook or by crook um, at the Six Nations. And as I said at the top, it's but now what do they build from that? So we had Jamie George on our pod the other day. Now the England captain. That's a fresh start. I think he'll he'll bring a freshness and a reconnection between the fans, the media, and the team itself, which definitely will help. 
they've lost a, a few really, really important players. Like Courtney Laws, still one of the best players in England, if not the best at the moment in the Premiership, and he's not available. We know plenty that Owen Farrell has done over the last decade or so, been in sensational uh, figure for England as a captain and as a, and as a fly half or a centre and a kicker. So they've got so much to sort out. I mean, who plays centre? Who plays back row? Um, there's no Tom Curry. There's all the lads that are playing in France. It does feel like a really fresh England team and set up. Felix Jones has joined the, set, the the coaching team too, which seems like a canny appointment. So there's a hell of a lot to sort out. And just on that statistical note, Alfie, you're right, on the starting badly, the last time England won on the first weekend was in 2019. And that was in Dublin. A bit of a smash and grab job with Henry Slade coming to the fore and winning 32-20 in Dublin. So yeah, it's been a long time for that. And, and the Scottish hoodoo, uh, hangs over them like a horrible dark old cloud doesn't it totally totally and you look at the fixtures for England so they start away to Italy and then they're at home to Wales and you know look there's no guarantees in the Six Nations but you look at those and you feel like this is as good as an opportunity as they have had for a while to start well you mentioned the various selection dilemmas it made me laugh a couple of weeks ago on the ruck when I asked you and Alex what's top of the intro what's on Steve Borthwick's to-do list and it was essentially well, how long have you got? Captain, which we have now had appointed, midfield, fly half. I mean, where do you want to start with them? Midfield is probably the best place because it wouldn't be a Six Nations or a World Cup or, frankly, any international window where we're not talking about England's midfield and, and what they do there. But the injury to Ollie Lawrence throws a major spanner in the works. England, over the since basically Greenwood and Tyndall, have had an absolutely absurd amount of partnerships in, in there. From everything from Ben Teo to Alex Lazowski to, I don't know, all sorts of different people. It's It's been crazy, the amount of turnover, actually, in at 12 and 13. And Ollie Lawrence seemed to be the guy, having been such good form for Bath, who would come in and move inside one. I mean, he's usually a 13 for Bath and been brilliant there. And Stuart Barnes has talked him up as an option, as, a, as an outside centre. But then he gets a hip injury. So now I think that the debate, I suppose, around England is how how saintsy do they go? Do they go full Northampton, which feels very unlikely, at least maybe not necessarily all on the personnel, but more on the style? Because they could they could pick a back line that's Alex Mitchell, Finn Smith, Fraser Dingwall, Tommy Freeman, Furbank. all involved. Yeah, and George Furbank as well. And they could be transplanting the very successful Northampton system that's tooled up, as we've mentioned, and beefed up, and they're top of the premiership. Dingwall's basically the only guy in the squad at the moment who's played any rugby at all this season at 12. Is there something funky in there? Could they, there's been talk in the past, could they move Freddie Stewart to 12? Never played there, but is there something that they could do to change things up a bit like playing Marcus Smith at 15? Because it just seems like they've got a battery of 13s, and quite a lot of wingers who can flit around, but no one to break the gain line. And if there's anything that we know about England and Steve Borthwick is, is a lot about data, and he's going to need someone to break the gain line. And it's just where on earth is that going to come from? I have to say, having having been in Limerick last Saturday, I know the the number ten shirt is is up for grabs. But I, it felt watching Finn Smith like you were um, you were watching the future future England out half, and he looked like a, a test animal, more so than Marcus Smith, you'd have to say. I think somebody said it on the commentary as well. He's a capable defender as well. He's he's he's, he's strong enough physically to, to, to defend in that channel. But his ability to see what was required and to match to manage the match uh, according to Northampton's needs was in, in, incredibly mature for a 21-year-old and uh, hugely impressive. So uh, that was just something that struck me watching watching that performance was that that, that guy's going to play a lot of test rugby. So from Borthwick's point of view, you'd have to be thinking, well, when is the, when's the best time to, to bring him in? He looks ready to me. Yeah, because that's the fascinating one as Alfie, you've teed up with the order of the fixtures because... Usually you'd say the game for someone like him would be Italy. But obviously it's the first one. England have never lost to Italy. And Jamie George, again, speaking on our pod the other day, was talking about going there and really making a statement. Like they want to take them to the cleaners. Um, They may not be able to. But do you say that's the game for Finn Smith to start? Or do you say, look, Ford is still only 30. He's still a class 10. He's probably going to be the man for the next few years unless Finn Smith becomes so much better than him. And do you stick with a little bit of continuity? Like, 
Ford was so good at the start of that World Cup, wasn't he, when Farrell was banned. Those drop goals in Marseille against Argentina were absolutely extraordinary. And he's only about eight or nine caps away from 100 himself. So I think knowing the small bit about how Borthwick selected his, his teams, is I feel like they probably still will err on the side of caution at 10. But that doesn't mean that Finn Smith doesn't come into it at some stage. But I suppose what stage? Because if you if you then go and have Wales at home, that could be a Finn Smith game potentially, maybe. And then Scotland away, you'd think, God, that would be a bit of a baptism, wouldn't it? Going up to Murrayfield, the guy who's got Scottish heritage himself, playing up there with the bagpipes going and everything else, and no doubt the rain falling. I mean, he's hey, every challenge he's had, he's taken, hasn't he, Finn Smith? But that's going to be interesting. And then where does Marcus fit into all of it? Because it seems that he did that job at fullback because that was a way of getting into the team. I don't think he sees his own future there. So where does he fit into all of it? How do they use him? England fans would love to see him dazzle and dance, but are they actually going to see it? Does all of this not get to the heart of it really, Will, of how much does Borthwick evolve, which you've said there, he'll, we expect him to err on the side of caution. And then on the back of that, what do the fans expect as well? Jamie George on the pod the other week spoke about he wants to make Twickenham a really horrible place for teams to come again, which it hasn't been over the last few years. And then that I think is linked to how quickly does the patience of England fans wane if they don't see a style of rugby that they want. Yeah, that's such an important part of what England have to do in this Six Nations. They did rebuild a bit of connection with their fans over the World Cup by their performances, as in by by the fact that they were winning games. Maybe not so much the style of play, but Twickenham for such a long time has been one of the easiest away places to go because it's so welcoming. It's, It's so desperate not to be English. It's so desperate not to sort of lean into the kind of parochial stuff that happens at other grounds. When you go to other countries around the Six Nations, you really get the Irishness of Ireland. You really get the Scottishness of Scotland. You really get the Welshness of Wales, the Frenchness of France. But with England, it's all sort of like hashtag carry them home. And it's all kind of all a bit corporate and all a bit sort of nice, isn't it? And all the fans there are spending a lot of money and they want to be entertained. They're saying, I could be doing something else on my Saturday afternoon. You entertain me and then I'll cheer. That's always been the way. So I don't necessarily think that England need to start playing like Harlequins or the Harlem Globetrotters to get England fans going. I think England fans would be very happy to see a clinical England performance with a dominant scrum maul and being clever and being clinical with their attack as well. But if they start being profligate and they start hoofing the ball away and the perception of the fans that it's unnecessary and they're not using their talent, then people will quite quickly turn again. So that is a massive challenge for England, definitely, in this tournament. Okay, so just a final one on England, Will. Same question that I asked Mark for Scotland. What does success look like for England this Six Nations? I think the standard always should be winning it. It always should be with England. They've got such resources, such a um, re-strengthened league. They should be competing for the title every season, and we say that every year. But more pertinently, they have to do better than winning twice. Like Six wins out of the last 15 games is just simply not good enough. Pretty embarrassing, to be honest, for England. Three of those have been against Italy, two against Wales, one against France. They've got to take out one of the big beasts, and they must get the Scotland thing off their back. If if England aren't embarrassed by losing to Scotland that regularly, Scotland have been fantastic in those games, but that before 2018 was a rivalry that had ceased to exist because England were too good for them and they've lost their way there. So they must get that one done up at Murrayfield. Interesting. Well, we'll leave England there. Moving on to finish off the podcast, we'll get into Wales and Italy. So the final two teams, Wales and Italy, Elgin, from a Welsh perspective, as they've so often done under Warren Gatland, are they able to put aside the issues in the game, the domestic form and exceed expectations? Or is it getting to the point where even Warren Gatland and the quality of coach he is might struggle to be able to do that? I think they will struggle this year. Yet again, David Jenkins... The new captain, Warren Gatland, have been saying, you know, oh, keep on writing yourself. We love being written off. It would be nice one year for Wales just 
not to be written off and for there not to be some sort of on off-field chaos leading into the Six Nations and hopes that uh, they might just steal a few wins. It would be just nice if it was just a nice oasis of calm going into one Six Nations. But uh, it's certainly not the not the case this year. The, the contractual wranglings are, are carrying on and look like they will continue to carry on. You know, I, I wrote during the World Cup that Wales fans wanted the World Cup never to end only because it was a bit of an oasis of calm from all the difficulties that are going on in Wales. It was a chance to soak up the Bordeaux sunshine, sing some songs in a square and, and watch a Wales team that was winning matches quite well at the World Cup. But yeah, there's there's a huge amount of regeneration, some of it through retirement, some of it through unavailability because of players going abroad and not having enough caps, injuries as per the, you know, the problem with yeah, you look at a team like France and England, they have a few injuries and someone else comes in that is a fairly dominant name, often with the Wales team. And it's it's always been the case that once the top dog in a position is gone, suddenly you're thinking, oh, who's going to play there now? And there's quite a few positions where that's been the case. And as I mentioned at the top, that, that first game against Scotland is so important because... After that, they go to Twickenham, where they've only won three times since 1988. They go to Dublin. They they haven't won in Dublin since 2012. And, you know, in previous years when they've won in Dublin and Twickenham, it's been a Grand Slam year because it tends to be the way with Wales that if they win that first game, they do get on a roll. If they don't get on that roll, then suddenly, you know, they are scrabbling around for wins. And, and the last two years, they've only won one game at, at the Six Nations in, in each of the past two editions. So when you look at it like that, the, the home games against Scotland and Italy, you know, really have to be won. Otherwise, you're looking at two very difficult away games and welcoming France to Cardiff. They haven't beaten France anywhere since 2019. Two years ago, they they actually did. They actually came closest to derailing France's Grand Slam. But again, you just look at the difference in the two teams this year and it's such a, a chasm in difference. So again, they will be written off and based off what's going on in Welsh rugby, you, you can't blame anyone writing them off, really. It feels like I'm being too negative, but... I'm going to be anyway. Do you look at those fixtures? You go through them there. So home to Scotland, first of all, away to England, away to Ireland, home to France, and then home to Italy. Do you fear that once again, it will come down to a wooden spoon match on the final weekend of the tournament? It, it, it could well do. And like I say, that that win, that first match up against Scotland is so important because actually, if you look at the last two years, if you look at everything that's been going on in the domestic game, two wins would possibly be viewed as a semi-successful Six Nations. And the round one and round five, home to Scotland and Italy, are looking like the two best bets. So the fear would be that if they did lose to Scotland, then yes, they would be 0-4 going into an Italy game. And as it's already been mentioned early on in this podcast, the last time Italy came to Cardiff, Italy won. So again, there's there's, there's memories of that. Of course, that was the, the death knell for Wayne Pivak's tenure. Now it's under... Warren Gatland. But again, lots of unknowns, but you are staring at that first game and thinking that the entire Six Nations could rest on how Wales fare on that first Saturday. How damaging has the Lewis Rees Zamet news been? Strange how that all unfolded as well. Warren Gatland finding out, was it the day before his squad announcement, getting a call from him? What does it do to their back three? Well, I think it was an hour before the squad was (laughs) announced, I think. Um, We were looking at after the World Cup, you're thinking, okay, you won't have Lee Halfpenny more anymore. So it was looking like you were going to have Josh Adams or Lewis Rees-Samit at fullback, and then the one who isn't fullback on the wing, and then Rio Dyer, who's just got better and better playing international rugby, and Warren Gatlin's a big fan of him on the other wing. So there is now a gap. Josh Adams has been having some injury trouble, but if he's fit, you'd think they'd throw him in either on the wing or possibly at fullback, and then Mason Grady, one of those rare, just huge, old-fashioned sort of Gatland backs who is just enormous, but also quite pacey and, and powerful. Could go on the other wing, maybe with, with Rio Dyer. Otherwise, you know, there's a chance for someone that's been on the outside, like like Tom Rogers, who can cover the entire back three, and, and Cam Winnett, who's, who's been playing fullback for Cardiff. So, yes, obviously, Wales have lost their their biggest star but if you have Grady Dyer and Adams playing then that's not a bad combination but yeah there's there's no doubting that Lewis Rizam is a huge loss because he is Wales's most thrilling player the one that the Netflix doc 
focuses on the one who adds a bit of razzmatazz. So they will, of course, miss him massively. And like England, like Ireland, fly half question marks, departure of Dan Bigger. Is it Sam Costello, the front runner for who's going to be the starting 10? Yeah, Sam Costello is very much seen as the long-term option there. The, the other two options are Johan Lloyd, who you know, we, we, we remember him as the, the teenager that burst onto the scene with Bristol Bears, primarily in the in the back three, often on the wing, sometimes at fullback. But he is very much, or at least growing up, he was very much a fly half first. I remember I saw his debut for Clifton College purely by accident, which is, you know, the fact he was making his debut for Clifton College as a sixth former says it all about some of the difficulties Wales are facing with with these talented players that, that go to private schools in England for sixth format, etc. But he is very much a fly half first and foremost, and he has been playing there for the Scarlets while, while Costello has been injured. They're both 22 years old, so they're both very young. Both of them have fewer than 10 caps. Yoan hasn't hasn't played for Wales since the, the Pivac era. The other option, Kai Evans, is primarily a fullback. And so we're seeing in that that 10 jersey the difficulties Wales are having in for that depth of talent. Like we say, Dan Biggers retired, Reese Patchell unavailable because he's overseas. Jared Evans isn't even entirely sure if he's eligible for Wales <laughs> because they don't actually know if he's available through a loophole um based off whether or not Cardiff offered him too bad a deal compared to what Harlequins offered him. But but Costello is is seen as the long-term option. In the past, when Wales had a few options, he'd be seen as the the young upstart. But as it is, he's he's the status quo option, despite only being 22 and and having fewer than 10 caps. But you know, he is he is a promising, promising fly half. And with Thomas Williams, who's been in great form at nine for Cardiff, you think that, that they could be an exciting, exciting combination at halfback. But We'll see how it goes. Final question on Wales then, Elgin. You know how we speak about with Ireland, there's no, it's not about the four-year cycle, it's about the here and now. And I think with, with Scotland and England, that is the same. There is an expectation to do well in this championship. With Wales, is there a bit more of an appreciation that the job Warren Gatland has here is a longer-term project? It is the start of a four-year cycle and building for the years to come rather than an expectation that they have to win right now? I think they're certainly portraying it as as a, a four-year thing. I think Warren Gatland has even said it's about the 2031 World Cup, let alone the 2027 World Cup, which is sort of veering into Eddie Jones' long-term territory, uh, which is ne- never necessarily the best path to go down. But, but I think you've seen it in the regional game as well. You know, I was at the Cardiff-Harlequins game where... Cardiff actually gave a, a good fist of it for a time, but Harlequins were just too good. And afterwards, you know, Matt, Matt Sherratt, the head coach, was sitting there just saying, you know, we're not here re- realistically to beat Racing 92 and to lose because everyone knows what we're going through in terms of budgets. We're picking a lot of 20 and 21-year-olds. You know, they've got squad sizes that with seniors and academies combined are as big as senior squads used to be by them. By themselves, so you have the likes of Mackenzie Martin and Alex Mann who are in the squad, and Cam Winnett who's in the squad. Yes, uh, you know, a byproduct of this is that young players are getting games, perhaps earlier than they would have done. But you don't want that to be forced upon people because of you know parlous financial situation. So I think there is this sense throughout Welsh rugby that there is still one or two years of pain to go at the very least, especially in the domestic game. And that that might, of course, feed through to the international game. Uh, but equally, yes, you do run the risk then of if there's another Six Nations where there's only one win or maybe even zero wins, then suddenly people do start feeling disenfranchised and, and just not enjoying going to Cardiff to watch rugby. I was going to ask you something related to that, Elgin, having covered a small bit of Wales myself, but I'm not Welsh and I don't live there or whatever how long does the kind of the stuff that Gatlin did in his first tenure last because we all know Welsh rugby fans are <laughs> they they quite like to win a lot more than they are doing and the thing that has always glued it together that has often been a shambolic scene in the regions but the, the thing that's glued it together is that the Welsh national team has been pretty good and punched above its weight and if it goes through two years three years four years five years of underachievement rather than overachievement do the fans start turning and just saying right we've had enough of this like or does or do the guys at the WRU have to completely change everything I don't think they'll fully turn you know I think back to 2005 which was the great magnificent release of that Grand Slam I was 11 at the time 
And I grew up those first six years thinking Wales would never, ever beat England in a rugby match. Wales weren't a country that, that won lots of rugby games, essentially. It was always about glorious defeat. And, and, and you remember that majesty, which, which ended a 27-year gap for a Grand Slam. And I was, I was actually speaking to Max Boyce, the, the troubadour of Wales, the other day for a piece in the Times Cup coming up soon. Uh, and he was talking about how that 2005 Grand Slam he looks back on it more fondly than any of the three from the 70s because it came from a position where you almost thought all all hope had gone. But you saw those scenes that day, uh, you know, something like 300,000 people in Cardiff or whatever it was still enjoying. So I don't think the fans will ever turn on Wales in the way that you, you alluded to earlier that maybe perhaps you know the fans at, at Twickenham can. You know, I I can't really. I, you know, it'd be it would be a real dark day if they were ever booing of the Wales team at Cardiff, and and I'm not sure I can ever imagine it happening in a widespread widespread fashion. But you would think that you know one more Six Nations, two more Six Nations, maybe where it is another one win, zero win situation, which is not completely unlikely again because the budgets for the regions are going down again next season and the, the you know there's the risk of the likes of Mason Grady possibly going to the premiership and being made rendered ineligible as a result for not having enough cap so there could still be some more hurt to go but I, I don't think they'll I think Gatlin still has a bit of bit of credit in the bank especially you know having got to the quarterfinals again at the World Cup at, at quite short notice I still think he's got at least two years credit in the bank. Let's finish things off with Italy then. Mark, coming to you on this, we spoke about it earlier, but some of the results and performances in the World Cup, do you worry the hangover and the impact that could have on the Italians? I think so. That Psychologically, as much as anything else, to, 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 to receive two such utterly convincing trouncings in those games, you know, nobody expected them to win, but the pattern has been Italy being competitive against just about anyone, even last year's Six Nations where they didn't win a game, they came close against France, they, they were in every game at some point, whereas um, at the World Cup against France and New Zealand, it was just a complete disaster, right back to the bad old days of, um, you know, when they, they were just entering the Six Nations, so there, there has to be some kind of sight or, or danger of a, of a psychological hangover from that the changing of the guard with the new coach has introduced necessarily a freshness and I think that you know there's definitely some things to be positive about um, behind the scrum they've got three exciting scrum halves it'll be interesting to see the, the pecking order there between Stephen Varney Pajrello and, and Alessandro Garbisi um, Paolo's younger brother interesting also to see what Kizada does with Garbisi he's played a lot of 10 and 12 flitting between the two for both the national team and Montpellier personally I think he's far better suited to the, the, the 10 role and I think that's where Italy will need him particularly if they're going to put more emphasis on their, their kicking game uh, with that, that sweet left boot of his I think they can get them into areas where where, where they want to be more readily than uh, Tommaso Allen who's had a bit of a sort of Indian summer to his test career but I think at his peak versus Garbisi's peak are, are two very different things and most importantly for, from my perspective is the return of Tommy Men Menoncello in the centres he's a, a truly outstanding player I think a, a generational talent from an Italy perspective uh, they badly missed him when he went down with a, a, a a, a bad shoulder injury but he uh, will, will bring real sort of guile and, and uh, creative uh, creative intent to that midfield they've, they've got no shortage of kind of bashing 12s but they've really missed some some kind of um, some some guile and and, and now at 13 which I think he's going to bring to bring to the table and if they can kind of su supplement that with the, the kind of forward strength that um, Kizada says he's going to uh, focus on uh, anew they may get in a position where they, 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 they can win one game Again, I think that would that that would constitute success. Would be would be one win. Got a good back five of the scrum. Front row depth is has been badly affected by injury, particularly a tight head. So again, one win is basically what it boils down to for for Italy. Again, I feel. And we spoke about how Italy previously run it from everywhere. That was their approach tactically. New head coach coming in. Do we know what to expect in terms of tactically how things might be tweaked? I think he will go more pragmatic, as we mentioned. Certainly the evidence at Stade Francais was that he was able to kind of switch up a fairly loose model into quite a tight one quickly there and successfully. Uh, but, he, you know, he was then still able to flip between the two as required. Uh, they would sort of loosen and tighten for, for specific opponents. But I don't think they'll be running it from everywhere, as we saw under Kieran Crowley. Um, there'll be a more kind of more focus on their kicking game. They've got a good line out. So, again, trying to bring that to bear. But, uh, you know, when you've got guys 
like the aforementioned Menoncello, Ange Capozzo, um, Monty Rani in the back three, you still want to find ways to bring them into the game, don't you? Who are they going to beat, Mark? If they beat someone, who are they going to beat? Certainly, certainly not Scotland, Wales. <laughs> I think we, they might we, beat Scotland. We, we had we've had that death match for for generations uh, go, going to Rome, and we like to think we're now past that point. But you know, as we mentioned, a lot of it will depend on where Scotland are going into it. Because if if they are zero from three, as opposed to three from three, then uh, that fourth game in Rome could could become very very tasty. Well, we better leave it there. Before that, to all of you, who's going to win? Who are going to end up being the Six Nations champions? Should we do our one to six? Just to really on, ruin then. everyone's days. It also gives more of a stick for people to beat you with when we get it wrong. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's what we prefer. Um, well, actually, I'll do it for drama. I'll go six to one, right? So I'm going to shock you, Italy. But they're going to win one game. Wales, fifth. Scotland, fourth. Ireland, third. Oh, Peter. England, second. France, first. There you go. That's mine. Wow. Right, I'll go next then, shall I? Italy, sixth. Wales, fifth. Scotland fourth, England third, Ireland second, France champion, without a Grand Slam. Yeah, I I was, I was no slam. Just to clarify as well, I think France are going to lose to Scotland. Okay, um, the list I have in front of me is the same as Mark's. It's Italy to finish sixth, Wales, Scotland, England, Ireland, and France. And I just like to say that I've I've noted what Will Keller has said there. That's <laughs> quite right peter as well i don't blame you there elgin round us off what do you reckon <clears throat> i will go italy scotland wales i've got to give wales the plus one bump uh england france and then ireland ireland grand slam do you think i was looking the other day no team this is where one of you will correct me no team has done back-to-back grand slams in the six nations era i think you have to go back to the five nations yeah it was france 97 98 did a double Double slam. England got within a hair's breadth of doing it in 2017 after doing it in 2016 and Peter Omani completely ruined their day and then went on the Lions tour and became captain of the Lions on the back of it. So yeah, you're right. It was um, Fabian Palouse and the gang doing it in 97-98. So Elgin, have you got Ireland as Grand Slam winners or just winners? No, No Grand Slam, just winners I'll go for. Okay, interesting. Well, gents, thank you for joining me on this Ruck Six Nations preview. Peter, off to Marseille, are you? Yeah, getting in on the the morning of the match, Alfie. um, Really looking forward to it, yeah. Um, Like I say, there'll be be a real buzz around it, I think. I think there's sense both amongst the Irish and French rugby communities that we had a a couple of more weeks left in us at the World Cup. So this is uh, some sort of... Remember who you're talking to, Pete. Jeez. What what was that? <laughs> Remember who you're talking to? We went, we went home after a fortnight. <laughs> Apologies, Mark. But yeah, um, yeah, I'll be I'll be there. I'll be yeah. If you're going to Marseille, get there about five hours early. Otherwise, you've got no chance of getting in. That's what I advise. Yes. <laughs> that was I think that was specially uh, arranged purely for the England fans, was it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're getting an Uber or a Bolt. Be prepared to spend at least a hundred euros to get back to your hotel. That's that's two bits of advice for journalists and fans. There, that's one for the expenses department. <laughs> so negative, Will. It's a great place. It's a great place to go. The game will be awesome. Uh, Mark following Scotland as well. Looking forward to it. Yes, uh, three days in Wales is always a, a highlight for anyone's February. So yeah, um, particularly as we, they always lose. So f- fingers crossed there'll be one change to the storyline. Uh, Will, following England, as usual, at their training camp at the moment, Will? Yeah, so uh, Girona in Spain, then from Barcelona to Rome, Rome for the weekend. So that's always quite fun, isn't it? Often it's around Valentine's Day and the flights are about £1,000 each. But actually, it's the first game of the tournament this time. And I'll advise, so on more advice, and not all of us need it because we go to these places regularly. Mark, go to Bar 44, Tapas Bar on Westgate Street. Awesome. If you're not pretty much... eh? Friday night. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I definitely recommend that. And don't tell all the fans who are listening to this either because then you'll never get a booking. Uh, and Elgin, final word from you. Wales, uh, Six Nations, and uh, start of a Six Nations campaign where it's all a little bit uncertain, but hopefully you, you enjoy what you see, maybe more than we expect or have teed up. As we all know, a match in Cardiff is, is more about match day than the match itself. And uh, I've, I've been absent from a lot of 
Cardiff match days in recent years, but being in those French cities at the World Cup where, where thousands of sea of red were met to sing some of the, the great songs in the in the city squares really rekindled, I think, a lot of people's affection for those match days. And I think there are plans to to keep that going in, in Cardiff for those three home games. So looking forward to being back in Cardiff three times and a trip up to Murrayfield for, for Scotland, France as well with, with Mark. Looking forward to that too. Are you singing at all, Elgin? Are, you, are people going to be seeing uh, you on the pitch? I'm, I'm not singing on the pitch this year, sadly, which was the highlight of the Wales's Six Nations last year. The uh, the highlight ended at when the first match kicked off um, at Wales <laughs> Island when I when I walked off in my lovely red jacket. So it'll all be all be some uh, nice relaxing singing in in various squares around Cardiff and on, on Westgate Street perhaps this time well we'll leave it there gents Will Mark Elgin Peter thanks for joining me enjoy the Six Nations cheers Alfie thanks Alfie thank you thank you come on the lads and enjoy the Six Nations to you as well thanks for listening this has been The Ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times make sure you pick up a copy of the paper you're subscribed to follow all of the guys coverage throughout the tournament make sure you follow and subscribe to The Ruck wherever you get your podcast from as well and a final reminder that Will and Mark's Inside the Scotland camp the chat they had up in Scotland will be out later this week a final preview ahead of the Six Nations enjoy the tournament we'll be with you every step of the way every Monday morning Small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat, rounded, textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.